0: We are repentant, we are grateful, we are redeemed, we are prayerful, we are First Baptist Church. I love it. Oh, goodness. So we are now in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Uh, We've been in a series of chronicling. Um, t- pun intended, uh, chronicling uh, David's longing and desire to build this extravagant, permanent temple modeled after the tabernacle right in Jerusalem. Um, and Solomon is about to begin his work. And that's where we are today in second chronicles chapter 3 if you're new with us today whether you're in the room or online it is a joy to have you worshiping with us uh, we would love to know that you're here you can go to fbcsa.org/connect just a simple way to say hey i worshiped with you today um, let me also encourage you as our church family to continue to give to what god is doing through our church family and the ministry God has given us, um, giving is certainly an act of worship, knowing that all that we have, remember, all that we have, God has given us, and we simply give as an act of worship of trusting Him and acknowledging who He is, that He is the great benefactor in our life. Um, so let's continue to do that together. So we're in 2 Chronicles, and I want you to stand and read with me 2 Chronicles chapter 3, just verses 1 and 2. Here we go. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. The construction began in mid spring during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. You may be seated. Father, help us to understand through these words of the chronicler um, your word shape us and change us into the image of your son more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Um, This morning, I I really want to spend some time talking about God's mercy towards us. We know that we are afforded God's mercy and grace uh, because of who Jesus is and his death on the cross and resurrection. That's that's the Easter story. Easter is every day for us. Not just once a year, but it's, it's the story that we embody as his children every single day. That we can taste and savor and be recipients of God's mercy and his grace because of what Christ has done. But I want to talk about mercy. Um, that withholding of judgment of God. Um, I, I feel like... Um mercy is one of those things that we don't fully understand. Remember uh, in Corinthians, Paul says right now um, we see things um, as if we're looking through a darkened mirror. We can't uh, see everything clearly, but there is going to be a day uh, when we're before the Lord that everything will make sense and we can understand. I-, I feel like mercy is one of those mysterious things that we don't really have a full grasp of. This side of eternity. Mainly because we don't have a full view of the glorious God, right? Um, And so this morning, and I feel like this is the heart and aim of the chronicler, is to help us understand God's mercy. And let's be honest. Let's be honest. If we're all honest, and I'm speaking for myself mostly, is that we can take God's mercy for granted. Uh, There's a part of us that can feel like, well, goodness, I I haven't really done all that much wrong. I'm, uh, I'm kind of entitled to God's forgiveness. right? I'm kind of entitled to God's favor. I, I, I kind of expect that. When I go before the Lord, I, I kind of expect God's favor on my life because I'm not all that bad. We have a tendency to be entitled or to be cavalier before the Lord or we tend to take God's mercy for granted. And I think... The aim of the chronicler, he's writing to people that have just come out of exile. Remember, God judged the people of God because of their idolatry and waywardness. And he said, listen, I'm going to send another nation, and they're going to bring my judgment, and they're going to take you into exile. I'm going to devastate Jerusalem, right? So this is 70 years after that judgment of God. He he has brought out a remnant of God's people, which is an act of mercy, that I think the chronicler wants to help them see. Uh, The Chronicler wants to help them see that our God has been a merciful God. And yes, some of you are wondering, gosh, God, what took you so long? What took you so long? Aren't we worthy uh, of of your blessing? Why aren't we blessed by you? And I think the Chronicler is trying to shape their proper perspective that you are recipients of God's mercy, and do you understand that? And I think he's going to use this moment of even the beginning of the construction of the temple of God, to accomplish those things, providing a glimpse of the kind of God that He is, a fearful but merciful God. And so right off the bat, in these first two verses, we have a lot of stuff going on here. And the chronicler is is alluding to two very powerful stories in the history of God's people that there is a very clear assumption that him just mentioning uh, Mount Moriah and the story of David and Arona, that they understand. They know these narratives. They know these stories. So he doesn't have to provide a bunch of backstory. But let's read these verses again. So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Now that's significant Um, Mount Moriah, which means the Lord provides, is the same location that God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and God provided a lamb in its place. So that very same spot where, where Solomon is about to build the temple is the same spot that Abraham provided that sacrificial lamb in replacement of Isaac. Powerful story. But then he says this, he says, where the Lord had appeared to David, his father, the temple was built on the threshing floor of Arona, the Jebusite, the site that David had selected. The construction began in mid during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. And so um, the chronicler, the writer who's putting uh, this narrative together, he points back to a story of God's mercy. And I, he does that on purpose. He points back to a story of God's mercy. And the story is of King David. Um, God allowed the adversarial angel or Satan to tempt David to take a census of his people. And uh, David, uh, hook, line, and sinker, fell for the temptation. And he sent out Joab and Joab's military leaders to perform a census across the land. Now, this was um, a great dishonor to the Lord. It displeased the Lord because what did it do? Uh, This is King David, who is growing in his power and influence and was beginning to measure his power and influence on how powerful his military was, rather than how great his God was. God, the whole time, in his relationship with the people of God, was always saying, trust me, I am your warrior, right? Trust me, I will deliver you in battle. And so this is David not trusting the Lord to deliver them from battle, but to determine for himself just how great and mighty he is rather than how great and mighty God is. And so God was not pleased. Even Joab didn't like this idea. Joab did not feel comfortable doing this, but he did it anyway because he was obedient to his king. Uh, Well, he performed the census, and the Word of God tells us that God was very displeased, and he sent the prophet Gad to to confront uh, David, and very quickly... Uh, very quickly, uh, David recognized his sin. He's a, he's a man after God's own heart. After all, he is a repentant man. But God said, listen, because of your sin and my displeasure, I'm going to bring judgment against you and the people. And he says, you have a choice to pick one of three punishments. Uh, either you can have a famine for three years, or I hand you over to your enemies for three months, or you or I send a plague for three days. And David says, oh my goodness, I am not going to entrust the well-being of my people to other human beings. I will entrust myself to God's mercy. So he says, Lord, I I will choose the three days. I will choose the three days because I trust you are a merciful God, that you will relent. And so God sends a plague, wipes out 70,000 people. And after the plague wipes out 70,000 people, at the end of those three days, God sends an angel with a mighty sword that's unsheathed, and he is at that threshing floor of Arona, the place of the threshing floor. And right before the angel of the Lord is to descend upon Jerusalem and wipe out Jerusalem, God says, stop. Stop. God relents. Well, the chronicle tells us, the chronicler tells us that David sees the angel. Of the Lord in the sky, hovering between the heavens and Jerusalem with his sword drawn. And David is terrified. He's terrified. Gad quickly comes to David and says, Listen, uh, Uh, you need to go to that threshing floor where where you've seen the angel and you need to build an altar to the Lord. And so David, very much in fear uh, of the judgment of the Lord, the continued judgment of God, goes to the threshing floor. He buys that threshing floor from Arona. And it is there that he builds an altar and sacrifices uh, animals unto the Lord and prays before the Lord, and it's a repentant prayer. He says, Lord, preserve my people. They are innocent. They didn't make the decision to to do the senses. It was all me. Uh, Bring your judgment against me and my family. Rescue my people. And the word of God says is that God listens to his prayer. Of course, we already know that because God relented. God demonstrated mercy. And so uh, David, after he sacrifices that altar, Um, it tells us in verse 30 um, that David can't go back to the tabernacle, which is in Gibeon, because he's terrified of the angel that has the sword. He's terrified. And of course, we know God answers his prayer, and God commands the angel to put the sword back into its sheath. But here's the point, is that this was a story of incredible mercy in the life of King David and the people of Jerusalem. Uh, That God had every right to bring judgment against David and his people, and yet he relents. He says, stop. And that relenting of God, that mercy of God, led to David's repentance. That mercy and the fear of God that David had led to his repentance. Repentance. Romans chapter 2, 4 reminds us that uh, God's kindness was intended to lead us to repentance. Or God's mercy was intended to lead us to repentance. That that keen awareness that God is withholding judgment from us. that, That we don't deserve all the things that we think that we deserve in light of our own wretchedness and sin. We're not entitled to anything. And anything that we have is an act of God's mercy and grace in our life. And that's what this story is. And I I really am convinced that that's what the chronicler is trying to convey to the people. That God is a God of mercy and provision. Don't take it for granted. Uh, And then lastly, we move into... Verses 3 through 14, and we get a glimpse of, as best we can, this side of eternity, a glimpse of the glory and majesty of God. Let me just read through these verses quickly, and as best you can with your own imagination, um, I want you to capture uh, this this structure that Solomon is building. The temple modeled after the tabernacle, a little bigger, um, and certainly a lot different features. Um, in its beauty. So here we go. This is in verse 3. These are the dimensions Solomon used for the foundation of the temple of God using the old standard of measurement. It was 90 feet long and 30 feet wide. The entry room at the front of the temple was 30 feet wide, running across the entire width of the temple and 30 feet high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold. That's hard to fathom, but the interior of this temple was overlaid with pure gold. Pretty phenomenal. He paneled the main room of the temple with cypress wood, overlaid it with fine gold, and decorated it with carvings of palm trees and chains. He decorated the walls of the temple with beautiful jewels and with gold from the land of Parvaim. He overlaid the beams, threshold walls, and doors throughout the temple with gold, and he carved figures of cherubim on the walls. He made the most holy place. This is where the Ark of the Covenant is to reside. It embodies a picture of God's presence with his people. This is where God would come meet. In the tabernacle, he would meet with Moses and and the high priests. And in this case, again, he is meeting with his people via the high priests in the most holy place. He made the most holy place 30 feet wide, corresponding to the width of the temple, and 30 feet deep. It was a cube. He He overlaid its interior with 23 tons of fine gold. Top to bottom, gold. The gold nails that were used weighed 20 ounces each. He overlaid the walls of the upper rooms with gold. Verse 10. He made two figures shaped like cherubim, overlaid them with gold and placed them in the most holy place. The total wingspan of the two cherubim standing side by side was 30 feet. These are big statues of cherubim. One wing of the first figure was 7 feet long, and it touched the temple wall. The other wing was also seven and a half feet long, touched one of the wings of the second figure in the same way the second figure had one seven and a half feet long that touched the opposite wall. Standing together, wingspan, wall to wall. So the wingspan of the two cherubim side by side matched the width of the room, which was 30 feet. They stood on their feet and faced out toward the main room of the temple. Across the entrance of the most holy place, he hung a curtain, made of fine linen decorated with blue, purple, and scarlet thread and embroidered them with the figures of cherubim. So there's gold and cherubim everywhere, right? Isn't that kind of the image that you capture? I don't know if you follow along with me. I know there's a lot of numbers and dimensions, but at the end of the day, there's a whole bunch of gold and there are a lot of cherubim. There are two enormous cherubim statues within the most holy place. There are cherubim on the veil. There are cherubim on the walls. It's almost as if If Solomon is trying to communicate something about the majesty presence of glory of God in that place. Again, as I said with the kids, we're not 100% sure what these cherubim looked like. But no doubt, no doubt they were supposed to convey a message of God's holiness, his power, his might, and judgment of God. These, These beings were to communicate God's judgment. And mercy, or withholding of judgment. Kind of points back to David and the angel, sword drawn. Kind of points back to the garden. You remember in Genesis chapter 4 when God cast out Adam and Eve east of the garden? Um, What did he put to guard their way back? Cherubim. Cherubim, much like the ones that were fashioned in this temple to point to those kind of cherubim. These cherubim were a sign of God's judgment and mercy. And it's hard for us to understand this, isn't it? It's really hard for us to understand God's mercy in light of this very opulent, incredible grandeur of a room that featured these mighty, huge, Beings. We still have a hard time understanding and feeling that sense of God's holiness. I think the chronicler is doing the best that he can to kind of capture that God is mighty, holy, and true. Every, every biblical encounter that we have um, between an individual being and the presence of God and one of these kind of angelic beings is, uh, is incredible humility. Incredible humility. And there's just a few of these. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6 when he has that incredible vision and he's caught up before the Lord in the throne room of God and there's smoke fills the room and above the Lord are are seraphim and they're saying over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, Isaiah didn't go into that vision and his response wasn't, oh, hi God, it's good to see you. Glad that we can meet. No, he fell on his face and he said, I am such a sinful man and I, I live among a sinful people. Every encounter that we have between God, between God and his presence and a man, an individual person, it has that kind of result. This keen awareness of our sin and our unworthiness and our worthiness of God's judgment. We look at Ezekiel and we get these incredible visions of Ezekiel. But when Ezekiel encountered these incredible angelic beings in the presence of God, he fell on his face before the Lord. Job, when Job, when God finally answered Job, and Job kept on saying, listen, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. And his friends were saying, yes, you had to have done something wrong. Finally, when, when God encountered and spoke to Job, what did he do? I have nothing to say. I have nothing to say about myself before a holy God. What about uh, Peter? Remember Peter? When he got a glimpse of the glory of God when they were on that boat in that storm. And they were just scared of, for their lives and Jesus was asleep and they get Jesus up and uh, Jesus do something and Jesus with just a word calms the storm. And um, Peter is beside himself. Peter's beside him. They're inside of him. Besides him, who is this man? Or, or remember the story of that very first encounter that Peter had when Jesus pulled in or, or told them to fish on the other side and they brought in tons and tons of fish after they'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. G, uh, Peter fell on his face, getting a glimpse of the glory of the Son. There was a whole lot he didn't know about Jesus at this point, but he knew something was significant about this man, and he said, I am a sinful man. Or... What about the the women at the the empty tomb when they saw those angels? They were scared for their lives. And Lastly, John. Remember John uh, when he was caught up and had these incredible revelations of what God was going to be doing in the future of the church and he was caught up in that throne room and he saw those incredible cherubim and angelic beings and he saw the presence of God and it says that he fell as if he was dead. Here's the thing, no one comes, we have no record of anyone coming before the glory and might and majesty of God and saying, you know what, you did the right thing by me. You know, you did the right thing by me. Yeah, you should have forgiven, I mean, look at me. I'm worthy of your forgiveness, I'm worthy of your mercy, I'm worthy of your grace. Thanks God, I appreciate it. And while you're at it, why don't you just add some more stuff? I, I really am deserving of more stuff, and more grace. No one, when they encountered God, did that. They all fell to their face and became keenly aware of their own sin. They became keenly aware of God's withholding of judgment, God's mercy. I, I'm convinced that that's exactly the, the kind of perspective that the chronicler wanted these people to continue to have. Listen, God has been merciful to you. You are not worthy of anything from the Lord. And yet, because of his love and his justice through Christ, of course, we know that on this side of eternity, that through Christ, we can afford God's mercy, his withholding of judgment. Hebrews chapter 10.31 says this, It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God apart from Jesus. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I, I don't know about you, but I need a new glimpse of God's glory and might in my life so that I don't take God's mercy for granted. So, I don't treat God cavalierly, like he's somehow my buddy, and somehow I'm worthy of God's affection and blessing and justice. I'm not worthy of any of it. I need that anew in my life. And I imagine some of you do too. I imagine some of you need that fresh, new perspective that the chronicler was trying to capture with these mighty beings portrayed in the temple. God is mighty and holy and just. And we are worthy of his judgment, but because of his mercy, he relents. We know that um, the Bible teaches us that mercy begets mercy. That when we begin to understand the mercy of God, that we will in turn be merciful to others. That we will have a proper view of who he is and we'll have a, a new perspective on who we are and we will in turn treat and respond to people accordingly. In the same way that God has treated us, our world is in desperate need of his church to have that kind of perspective on God's mercy. Our world is desperate for a people who are captured once again by the glory and majesty of God. And that might taste His mercy and not take it for granted, but live by the power of the Spirit of God and demonstrate mercy to others. Our world is desperate. To encounter that kind of mercy from his church. To be the light of the world. To be a blessing to those around us. Not because we have it all together. Not because we're worthy somehow of God's affection and attention. But because he has demonstrated mercy to us. And we want others to know and taste and savor that mercy too. That's what I need. I'm thankful for the chronicler to remind us of God's incredible mercy. God's incredible might. God's incredible glory. uh, So that we might too become the kind of people that God has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, these handful of verses. And I know it's about a structure and a building. But Lord, um, in these words are, are wrapped up a perspective that some of us, including myself, often lose. And that is your mercy is extravagant. Your mercy is extravagant. And when we look to the cross, the greatest depiction of your justice and love together, we see the wrath of which we are worthy. And we embrace the mercy that you have given us through your son. Help us never to forget that. Help us to live embodying that type of mercy. And so, Lord, we ask as your people, help us to see, to get a greater glimpse of your glory, so that we never take your, your, your mercy for granted. Help us to behold your glory so that we can be the people you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.